0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another Mastering Dungeons. I'm Sean Merwin, here with Teos Abadilla to talk about all things D&D. Hey, Teos. Hey, Sean. How's it going? It, it's, it's, it's been a month, a week, a year. I, I don't even know. I, felt like, I feel like the last time we recorded was two months ago, and it was eight days ago. So <laughs> it's just, it's crazy uh. time.
1: Time fades, especially when you're working hard, and I know you are.
0: Oh, yeah. I have. Uh, you know I it's... Have, I have looked at a lot of monsters in the last few <sighs> weeks.
1: I can only imagine. Yeah, they they uh, they inflict damage upon their creators. Yes, they do.
0: Yes, they do. And uh, there is a lot of damage being done by Wizards of the Coast to our wallets. Uh, yes. With, with a lot of these announcements. So last week we talked in the news about a leak of some books and now wizards has gone ahead and said those leaks. Yes, they are true. So they talked about the two new hardcovers that will be coming out in the next few months. The first being the wild beyond the Witchlight, light, a Feywild product that makes the big fall hardcover release uh, coming up on September 21st. So what did you hear about that book? So they unleashed the Week of
1: Legend Lore, which was a all-week-long series of short videos that they produced. Um, you know, They hired a, a known voice actress to, to kind of play a part and um, reveal little tidbits. And, and it was a lot of tidbits. And I, honestly, the most information that you could get was when the pictures came out of the back cover, <laughs> which gives us that summary. Yeah. <coughs> And what it tells us is that, uh, this is all about the fantastic Witchlight carnival touches down on our world. Once every eight years and Mr. Witch and Mr. Light run the carnival. This is a gateway to the prismere domain of delight in the feywild. Time has not been kind to the realm and dark days are ahead unless someone can thwart the dastardly schemes of the hourglass coven. That's a lot, Sean.
0: Yeah. That, uh, there certainly sounds like an adventure in there somewhere. Uh, <laughs> I hope. Yeah. It, yes. It, it's interesting that it will cover levels one to eight. Mm-hmm. And it does have that definitely has a sort of Feywild carnival. I I I always think of Eric Mengi when I think of the Feywild and carnivals and, and strange things. Uh, for his work over the years on both the Jeff uh, adventures and now on the Munche Island Adventures for Bald Man games. So uh, I love these kinds of adventures. They're generally fun to play. They're generally great for new players uh, because it's not always focused on these deep, dark, or at least the surface level, deep, dark uh, things. It's more... it's it's easier to role play when you've got these fun little carnival things to to focus on, rather than trying to dramatically role play something deeper. Um,
1: yeah, and it, it can be kind of wondrous, uh, and you can easily interject whimsy when you're in the fae wild, and uh, and it gives you the ability to alter things and play things. Like Eric Megas' adventures are fantastic to me because they always call back on nursery rhymes. Mm-hmm. Um, they play upon kind of these old tales and, and, and so it all has a feeling that, that sort of this verisimilitude from it, but it's fantastic and different and unusual and surprising all at the same time, which is great. Yeah. So.
0: And, and they said that there was a tie or it seems like there will be a tie into the material from Van, Van Richten's because they have a domain called the carnival. Yeah. So you, you will assume that they, uh, there is a connection there.
1: Yeah, and and we saw this, in, in if you look in Van Richten's, and we haven't covered this chapter yet, but there is, in the domain of the carnival, a tale about Isolde who used to run this carnival, the Fey Carnival, mm-hmm. sold it to a pair of Shadokar elves who wanted to basically trade carnivals. So the Shadokar elven pair, they um, ran this Shadowfell kind of haunted carnival. Mm -hmm. She ran, Isolde ran the Feywild carnival, and they traded. And all under the watching eye of this Zeblina, an arch fey who has manipulated Isolde, she casts a spell of forgetfulness over her. And so Van Richten sort of leans in on this, okay, the Shadowfell type carnival that is now a Domain of Dread, and Isolde is being manipulated by Zeblina. But these twins have gone off and run this fey carnival. And I bet this is that same carnival.
0: Yep, you you one would assume, mm-hmm. and we know we recently had uh, unearthed Arcana articles that talked about fairies and rabbit folk and owl folk and fay, the fay version of the hobgoblin. Uh, so it's not too much of a stretch to assume that that may find its way into this book as well. Yeah. And what's the second book that they discussed?
1: So the second one is our next Magic the Gathering crossover, the third one to come after uh, Theros and um, Ravnica. Mm -hmm. Um, We now get Curriculum of Chaos. And this is all about Strixhaven, which is a recent card set in the Magic the Gathering world. Um, This book comes out in November, um, so after the other one, after Feywild. And we already got a sneak peek with the Unearthed Arcana article that was provided this week which I think we're planning on going into maybe next time.
0: Yep, yep. So, yeah. And Ray Winninger has been very active on, uh, on Twitter, particularly talking about things that they're working on, which is a very unusual thing for wizards.
1: Yeah, um, if you don't mind, before we go into that, I want to just quickly, because we're, we'll cover the, U, U, the UA article on Earth Arcana next time, just to quickly say that the point of Strixhaven which can, to me sounded really interesting is this is a sort of fantastic school that was created by, I think five dragons mm-hmm. and uh, five different colleges are all in this sort of mega university space. Mm-hmm. And each of them being magic, the gathering have sort of different creeds, which are aligned with card colors. Mm-hmm. And what I like about it is this creates one of those, you know, fantasy uh, going to school type situations that I right. think can be a lot of fun. And, and yeah. so It'll be neat as more details come out on what they're gonna do with this, kind of how it plays out, because you always have this card representation and the lore that the Magic the Gathering team put together. But how you weave that into adventures is is going to be really cool.
0: Yeah. And I think you know, we don't need to mention the uh that IP that rhymes with Perry Hotter. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and, that, and it's not the only so one, popular, right? There, right. Oh there yeah. are a lot of
1: Fantasy genres, the, the, and and even recent things like on television, right? There've been a number of shows that sort of dig into this idea of, hey, we have powerful magic, and we go to this school, and oh, the school has a dark secret. Lo and
0: behold, right. we believe it. Yep, yep, yeah. <laughs> so uh, that should catch the imagination of potentially more, even more fans who are are fans of that sort of trope of yeah. a magical school and uh, gives you a D and D property in which and a wizard, in a uh, magic gathering property with which to work.
1: Yeah. That should be really interesting.
0: Mm-hmm. So yeah,
1: you started mentioning Ray Winninger, the executive producer of D and D and this was kind of like fascinating. I, I, if anyone else was like us, we were looking at these tweets and just devouring every word and reading and rereading them to see what they were conveying. Mm-hmm. Because he, he's on some things that he said were sort of very you know easy to digest on a service level, but others are, are really suggestive and fascinating and, and, yeah, just make the mind go. Um, the easy thing he said was two more products are in production that revise classic settings. Right. Yeah. I mean,
0: right there. <laughs> You've got a lot of people's attention and a lot of people – are naming their favorite classic settings and are sure that this one, this time <laughs> it's mine. This time the one I like the most will come out. And and, and w- one thing to point out, and I, he probably said this, uh, is just because they're in production does not mean, A, that they're going to come out soon, or B, that they will come out at all, because they may get to a point where they work on something and they decide, well, it's not the right time. And it just ends up not coming out. And when you are actually profiting from your work, uh, you have the luxury of doing that.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that, that's true. That studio article we covered back uh, a few ex- episodes ago talking about how sort of half of all their products don't actually come out. But he did say these so far look very good. Mm-hmm. But it'll be interesting to see, you know, any of these could die and never come through. Yeah. But we were told one of them, one of these classic settings is being led by Chris Perkins and is nearly complete. Mm-hmm. The other one is led by Wes Schneider with assistance by Ari Levich and is ramping up. Both would be for next year mm-hmm. and both would be quote formats you've never seen before. But then he went back and clarified all our print products. What do you make of that, Sean?
0: Uh, I have no idea. <laughs> They're, i I'm trying not to speculate for a lot of reasons uh-huh. um but it it's definitely if you want to tantalize your your fan base right your super fans your people that are following you on Twitter and devouring every word this is how you do it. Right. Yeah. Because that leads to speculation and that leads to attention and that leads to more eyes on your products and, and your marketing and your PR. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, if you're a publisher, especially in a game space like this, that's what you want. But uh, come on, Sean, be a person for a second. No, if you, if if you could think- have <laughs>
1: the thing you want them to be working on, what would you want Chris Perkins or Wes Schneider to be working
0: on right now? Ah, boy. <laughs> i i i don't I don't know i yeah oh I know it's 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 hard because I'm working on my own stuff, <laughs> yeah, you yeah, know, and it fair. so i it's it's hard to say that it's hard to well say I can that.
1: tell you, yeah, with Chris Perkins, I know that one of the things he loves that I love is the old Pharaoh series of adventures, mm, mm-hmm. and yeah. so something I would love for him to release would be that yeah
0: yeah uh, w- would you would you call that a setting or would you call that an i mean
1: It's it's funny because originally it was sort of nowhere. Then it was sort of Greyhawk, and then it was shoved into the Forgotten Realms. Right, Um, and and it is sort of its own little land. It could easily be tied into any, almost any of the desert settings we've had true uh because part of its premise is that you aren't from this desert place so you're from the border area so yeah. there's a border area the world isn't just sand right right and so there's a lot of flexibility with how you can go it, it's more and, and the point is for it to feel i think different to you not not known so um well you know yeah. even if it were transferred into al Qadim, the idea you'd be from somewhere else or if it's yeah. kalim sham or whatever right so, yeah burning yeah, desert. Like
0: that. you, I am a huge fan of, of Pharaoh and that whole Desert of Desolation uh, series. And yes, I would love that. Uh, yeah. I would love to see that done, heck as a as a domain of dread even. Uh, it, would, <laughs> yeah. it would work. Um, yeah. Because it has that feel to it from, even from the very first adventure, right? You're, you're sort of sent off as criminals into the desert and you come across this yeah. pyramid. Uh, yeah. A lot of folks had good takes
1: on Twitter, and one yeah. of the ones that I liked was Enrique Bertrand, Newbie DM had uh, the idea of what if Chris Perkins were to bring back Eomandra, the old campaign that he ran during the 4E days, and he would blog about as part of his DM series that he wrote on the D&D blog. And that yeah. would be a lot of fun, too, all the Dragonborn and uh, Dragon Empires.
0: Yeah, Who I mean, w- what gets me more than what setting it is is what format it would be, because that, for me, would be the game-changer. Um, you know how do you write uh, a setting how do you write an adventure in a format other than what you have um, do you do a choose your own adventure sort of product mm-hmm. um, do you do Yeah, a, a solo product would uh, be along similar lines um, but if it's a print product mm-hmm. then you're not talking about um, you know video you're not talking about apps, uh, unless you're right. talking about supplementary material. So, that is uh, an interesting thing.
1: But yeah, if it were a two-player, like one DM, one player, that could be a, a bizarre format. Um, or even, I mean, you know, D&D and its histories had crazy things like the the Dark Sun, or Dark Sun, the Dragonlance Fifth Age thing that was very mm-hmm. card-based. Yeah. Um, you know, there have been all sorts of wild concepts in, in play. So, uh, this that's fascinating, too, to see what that might be. I'd love to see something that was a real toolkit for DMs where a new DM would have these ingredients and all of the guidance needed to sort of create their first campaign and adventure. Yeah. I think that'd be a fascinating product that would fill a hole that the DMG has in it.
0: Yeah. A, a more card based D and D game is something that's been on my mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, just because of all of the magic, the gathering crossover in both directions uh, if you if you like if you want to get magic players who are not D and D fans playing a game different than D and D but still different than magic, you know what sort of card based RPG elements can you add to D and D to to do that? Yeah. And so that's you know that would be a print product. Yeah. Uh, so yeah.
1: It's always dangerous. It can end up feeling like put a dragon die in every, uh, in every product like yep. we had back in the late eighties, I think it was. Yeah. Um, and it can feel like fortune cards. So you never know, but, but obviously yeah. there are a lot of great RPGs like Phoenix, Dawn Command that use cards
0: yep. really well. So
1: yeah, who knows.
0: Yep. But that wasn't everything that Ray told us. I know. He continued on and on saying that there were also going to be not just two classic settings being worked on, but also two completely new settings that are not Magic the Gathering-based worlds. So there you go. Now, we, we can't – it don't, won't do us any good to speculate there because with a new setting, it could be practically anything. But yeah. you would just hope that it would reach – Reach out to new audiences, right, um, and right. not be similar to ones that they already have. Yeah, create new
1: experiences. Well, yeah. and I think that's it. You, you know, we know that they're not going to create another Forgotten Realms, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that. it probably is a focused experience in some way, which which is neat. That's great. You know, neat to take a departure and get that feel, and then you can come back to the bread and butter you you're used to. Mm-hmm. And then there was one more thing. <laughs> Go ahead a return to a setting we've already covered okay well that's i mean so five things yeah. two classic two completely new and a return to something they've already done and that's where you you, you can well, wow wow i mean we... it could
0: be just more forgotten Realm stuff but it could be eberron uh, yeah what what else have they covered
1: i mean we've already been back to ravenloft with Ravenlof. van richten okay. so i i yeah. you know i don't it's really hard to say. Uh, they've touched on Greyhawk a bit, so maybe there could be another salt marsh like product that could maybe even be near it. You know, that could be interesting to sort of piece by piece add some Greyhawk. I don't know.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yep. It's uh, <laughs> it's an interesting, interesting time to be a D and D fan and to have to cover it in news on a podcast. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and speaking of strangeness, uh, the, a new D and D survey came out. And I will tell you my experience with it. And then I'll let Teo share his experience. Sure. So Teo said, this is a crazy survey. You have to take this survey. So I clicked on the link, to take the survey. And I basically got exactly like every other D&D survey that I've taken. It asked, you know, what do you think about this product? Or what do you think about this rule element? And how much money do you spend? How often do you play? You know, all of those typical questions. It did ask me a few questions about the rules, almost as if I had to prove that I knew what I was talking about. And they were very simple. If you're a player, you know, what die do you roll initiative with? What, you know, what, what do you do when you have advantage on a roll? That, those sorts of questions. So it was obvious um, that they were just trying to get a feel for whether you actually knew the rules or not. And and then the survey ended, and I was like, well, that's a typical survey. But apparently the survey I got was not the same survey that other people got. Yeah,
1: I, I got a survey that's a bit more like what some people had, but I didn't get the full thing either. So I had all these questions about races and sub-races that you had as well, mm-hmm. uh, which in and of itself is fascinating because, what, are we going to revisit all of the core races? like? And 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 I got to quickly say that looking at this, one of the things that I found fascinating was how simple the core race design is.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I think it's surprisingly effective. Like, to me, this is good design that a halfling, a particular type of dwarf, you know, all of this mm-hmm. is expressed in actually very few words and features, mm-hmm. but manages to feel like that. That's a win. Yeah. But recent design has more words to it and more stuff. Yeah. And I don't know that I want more stuff, but none of the survey questions are saying, do you want more stuff? It was just simply, do you like, you know, a rock gnome, right. which I think is my least favorite of, <laughs> of the design angles. But yeah. so, I, all right. So there was that. And then it gets to this part and there's a screen that basically says, hey, we've got a new thing we want to talk to you about. If you want to learn about this, you have to agree not to talk about it. And I'm thinking to myself, this is the worst NDA I've ever received. <laughs> First of all, I I need to have a legal copy, a copy of this. I need to sign it somewhere. And it was talking about how they could go down and hunt me if I talked about it. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And then proceeded to be a thing, which I guess I can't talk about, though right. I'm not entirely sure that's legally true. Um. And then it said, "Were you able to to see this?" And I and and would you like to? give us feedback. And I said, yes. And it said, thanks so much for taking the survey. And a lot of people on Twitter are reporting this as well, that, that there was no opportunity to give feedback and maybe it was demographic based. Like maybe something else I'd said earlier, well, we don't want your feedback, but then why did you show it to me? It was really very strange. I I would guess it's probably a bug in there somewhere. And then why you didn't even get to this part is fascinating. And so you know, all I can say to listeners is go take this survey, I guess, if you're curious, but it's kind of weird. And, and I don't understand anything about why this survey was created. And I know all of this is hard. Um, my wife has taken a lot of coursework in survey design. I know it's hard for companies to try to do these kinds of endeavors, but, um, Man, I don't know that this
0: is is overall a positive for anybody. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, I would say, you know, go do it and talk about it, but you can't. You can't talk Uh, about it, but hey, go do it, maybe. Yeah, go do it and see what happens. Uh, It'll be like everything else with with D&D right now. It's just the future is such an unknown. Uh, Whether you're a fan or whether you work in the industry, there's so much changing so quickly and there's so many opportunities uh that it it really boggles the mind
1: there's a doors lyric you know the future is uncertain and the end is always near let it roll baby roll
0: (laughs) exactly yeah you've got your doors reference for the week (laughs) and speaking of all their languages uh (laughs) wizards has announced a new approach to translated products and i know this has been a bell that you have been ringing uh, for years and years. So I will let you give the good news. Yeah,
1: this is my favorite. It's technically one of the studio blogs and my favorite to date for sure because, yeah, this has been a big issue. Uh, the the short version is that, you know, we've covered this on this on this show before. Um, translations were done from the very beginning of 5e in a sort of unorthodox way. They decided for 5e to farm it out to Gale Force 9. Gale Force 9 then farmed it out to various... Companies that are in different countries, and that works great in a place like Japan because they just have a Japanese translation. And I went to a Tokyo store and I bought all the core books translated, easy peasy. You can find them in you know department large department stores. You can find them in gaming shops, easy. But when you get to something like Spanish, they were with somebody who's in Spain. Uh, that's who they contracted. And so if you try to buy a Five E Players handbook in Spanish, you must buy it from this one company that's in Spain, and you'll pay. About 150 bucks after it's all said and done with shipping. Mm-hmm. And if you can imagine, that's hard for somebody in the U.S. But for somebody that's in Latin America, that's like an impossible price to pay. Yeah. you know, Nobody can get a Spanish 5e book. And this has slowly gained attention at Wizards to the point where now, seven years later, yeah. Wizards of the Coast has regained control of translations, what they call localizations, in French, Italian, German, and Spanish. And they may do so for other languages, but that's where they're starting. Um, And new releases are planned for these languages. This will take the core books and update them to the latest version with rod and all of that. They may add additional products over time. Uh, That is their plan. And they are hiring dedicated team members to work on these products. Now, this is not an easy thing. You might just think, like, we'll translate it and send them out there. It's not easy at all because of how different all of these economies are. So what you really need is you actually need, like, local supply chain work to establish in each of these areas of the world different sort of beachheads of printing and production and distribution. It is not a simple thing to do. Uh, I work with people who do this type of stuff. It's very complicated, very difficult. Mm -hmm. So they're doing that, you know, they're good on wizards. They're creating relationships with printing and production vendors to do all this, collaborating with local market teams in Europe and Latin America. Um, and it's all happening pretty quickly in September, the two core rule books and the essentials kit will be out in the four languages. Um, Spanish is Iberian Spanish. So, you know, that is always a a sort of issue, but, uh, well, you know, better than not. Um, and then they're going to do more releases in 2022, roughly a quarterly cycle of new releases. They will try to re- align the release dates. What, what wizards would like to do is to say, "Hey, you know we're releasing whatever adventure, for example, mm-hmm. everywhere in all the four languages." Right. but you know it, it may be that they can't quite do that, but that's
0: their goal. yeah and and really, what this shows is that, as I mentioned before, once you're actually profiting on your work you have the flexibility to do things like this. Whereas before you were just trying to sell it in English and lucky if you could make a profit on that, you know, yeah. this shows that they, they feel like they've gotten a uh, business to the point where they a uh, have the money to do it and B need to market to new markets uh, if they want to continue that rising profit. So, you know, good on them for, taking what is definitely a risk uh, for sure, but but a risk that uh, will hopefully benefit fandom around the world. One thing I heard a lot
1: about uh, as a result of this announcement is well, I guess we're not getting six E anytime soon. Yeah. Because you're not going to go through all this work around five E if you're about to switch to a different edition. And that's probably true. Mm -hmm. Um, There are a few other minor, minor things. They're launching new Facebook and Twitter accounts that'll be in those languages uh, new website with localized pages. This announcement itself is available in all four languages. Uh, they said new VOD and streaming content is coming in these different languages. Um, and then the other thing they did is they fixed prices in the EU because I guess for all seven years they've had the exact same price in euros as in dollars, <laughs> which they're yeah. actually different currencies. Uh, Quite so. Different. They're like. <laughs> They kinda of had this way cute way of saying kinda of, oops, hey, now products are thirty nine ninety nine Euros instead of forty nine ninety
0: five. Are bad. Yep. <laughs> I'm setting out a pile of Euros here from the last time I traveled to yeah. Europe. I haven't been able to get back yet. Maybe I'll buy it in Euros. There you go. There you go. Uh, so we talked about D and D live, which is coming up in July, but Wizards has moved on and they're now announcing the D and D celebration, which is happening September twenty fourth. Through twenty sixth, and not only will there be a D and D celebration, which will cover you know, online gaming events, uh, the release of the Wild Beyond the Witchlight, sneak previews of upcoming products, panels, uh, play sessions with D celebrities. They're also announcing a DM challenge. So, what, what do you think of this, Teos? Uh, well, it's,
1: it's a thing that we've talked about Mm -hmm. for kind of years in various ways. And, and, uh, and there've even been a couple of little miniature things that Wizards has tried at events like PAX around this kind of concept, but, um, but it's neat. It's, it's a cool idea. It'll start, uh, probably the day that you get this recording. It's June 17th, uh, at noon Pacific, there will be a 72 hour open call for submissions And, uh, you will then, um, there's some kind of group (laughs) that is going to review these and you will be approved to go on to stage two. Some number of the top 10 will be chosen to go on to stage two. Mm -hmm. The finals from stage two will then move forward to the final challenge, I guess, stage three. And then the winner will be announced in September during D&D celebration. They'll get an exclusive trophy that apparently is really awesome. So so says the D&D folk have seen it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Brandy Camel was saying she'd seen it. Uh, a suite of D&D DM products and a feature in Dragon Plus magazine. Yep. Uh, it's not just the U.S., but it, it's sort of, you know, as often happens due to legal reasons, a bizarre right. mix of which countries are allowed and aren't, uh, like, you know, No Quebec, Part of Canada, yes. Part of Canada, no. Uh, some of Europe, some of Asia. So take a look at the dndcelebration.com/welcome page, and you can learn the info there. And if you're excited about this, I would say totally do this. Um, yeah. A number of com- country uh, companies have done sort of events like this. You know, one of the best known was the RPG Superstars that Paizo did. Mm-hmm. Uh, they used that as sort of a, the fuel of finding the engine by which they found a lot of people to write for them. I don't know that this will be like that, uh, but it's still a neat event and a great way to get recognition. And to me, the biggest thing of this is that you will force yourself to sort of work and improve mm-hmm. on whatever this task is. And that will be good for you. If, if you're someone who wants to be an up and coming designer, this is a way to force yourself to sit down, put digital pen to paper and create.
0: Yeah. If you apply for a job at a RPG design company, uh, you may get tests exactly like this. So, you know, even if, you are just doing it for fun. It's a great experience. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, we, now, we now know about Critical Role's summer plans as they <laughs> announced Exandria Unlimited. It will be a limited run show to fill the gap between season two, which just ended, and season three, which they really haven't talked about yet because Matt Mercer needs to <laughs> regain some sanity points. <laughs> uh so what what did we learn about Exandria Unlimited?
1: I mean, well, the biggest thing that I read off the bat was like, oh, well, this is neat, is uh, we have a new DM. Okay. So Matt Mercer shifts over to becoming a player, and the DM is Abria Iyengar. Um, and this was a Twitter trending topic the day it was announced. So that's how big Critical Role is. Uh, her, I believe it was her name that was, uh, highlighting uh, kind of being in, in the trending part. Uh, Abria has appeared on various Critical Role shows over time. She's voice acted on video games, written for several role-playing games, and has run or been on the cast of shows for a bunch of channels, including her uh, friends, the Saving Throw Show, um, or Saving Throw Network. Um, then we have Amy Carrero joining as a player who's new to RPGs, but a very experienced with animation roles. She was the first Latina Disney princess on Elena of Alavor playing Shira ra in the recent Netflix series. How cool is that? Mm-hmm. And then various NBC and FX shows, films, and so on. So, you know, quite the talent. And I'm watching this video where you have somebody who's that established saying like, this is a dream come true to, you know, roll some dice with Critical Role. I'm like, really? Wow. <laughs> yeah. We've reached this point? Um yeah so that was something and then robbie damond who's the voice of spider-man and peter parker uh for the marvel animated universe shows has a whole other you know long list of things that he has done um and then ashley jans johnson and liam o'brien from uh the the cast uh playing again um so not everybody from critical role joining this effort but some are yeah, it really, th- this is fascinating stuff. We're gonna explore Taldere and the city of Iman, uh, which uh, was featured in the first season uh, as part of the Vox Machina episodes. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see. You know, some of this material in Taldere comes from the book that's out of print. Would that mean anything? Mm-hmm. Originally, there was this thought that Critical Role and Wizards might partner on another book. I don't know if that's going to happen, or if they would do their own thing, or just if this is just going to be a summer thing and there'll be nothing to accompany it. I don't know. Yeah, they did at one point. Uh, Robbie Damon mentioned how exciting it is to play D anD D, so one presumes that they are indeed using D anD D to play the game. Yeah, especially since this is a shorter summer thing. Yeah, and yeah, there you can go to the Critical Role, critrole.com and find out about. This area of the world and and the show will start on June 24th, 7 p.m. Pacific on the Twitch and YouTube. And if you watch it, you'll be accompanied by at least five other people. (laughs) At least five (laughs) million
0: other people. Yeah. Well, if you're a hardcore critter, you probably already know all of this. Yeah. And if you're not, hey, uh, it's still something interesting in the RPG space. And moving over to some uh, Magic the Gathering news which ties in with D and D there will be a magic, the gathering stranger things set. So wizards and Netflix announced that collaboration on a special card set. Part of the universe is beyond that will be available later this year. It'll be a limited edition set available through, uh, an atypical way of selling cards called secret layers, uh, this is above and beyond my knowledge of anything in life, but I assume that uh, it it is exciting for people who are fans of both Magic: The Gathering and Stranger Things.
1: Yeah, my understanding is this format has been one that's led to sort of a, a lot of kind of collecting, uh, fur uh, fury, you know, fervor because um, of of this. It's sort of available for a while, but it's hard to get, and so. Uh, that's less interesting to me than overall, which is that there is this now stronger link between Wizards of the Coast and Netflix. Mm-hmm. That That's interesting, I think, to D&D fans to see if that could develop further, because it can be t- really hard for companies to talk together. And once you create those links, it's, mm-hmm. it becomes easier and easier, and that's that's worth watching. That
0: is a very true statement. And we mentioned this earlier, and we're just going to sort of gloss over it for now, but the new Unearthed Arcana talks about the Strixhaven product, and it talks about five new subclasses. And the difference is that these subclasses can be taken by multiple classes, which is the first time I believe that in a Wizards product we've seen something like that. Yeah, We will, we will discuss each of these in more detail later. Uh, but we just want you to know, fans, that it's out there and you can take a look at it and let us know what you think before we delve into yeah. it.
1: Yeah, it's really cool design. I would be really curious to hear from listeners what they think about that idea of, you know, you're a druid and instead of joining a circle, you join this college and and your features come in now at different levels than or well, it's the same levels as you would as a druid, but they come from this other set. <laughs> mm-hmm. So there's a sort of currency exchange that's going on with this design. I'm curious if if anybody has issues with it.
0: Yeah. And the last bit of news. Uh, PAX Online recently announced that they will be doing their thing July 15th through 18th of this year. Uh, there'll be Twitch streams, online, an online merchandise store, an online expo hall, and lots and lots of gaming. Uh, there's a free level with no badge required to get some of that stuff. And with a $15 badge, you get a $10 coupon to the merchants, uh, merchandise store, as well as other various goodies. If you... Like the Omega-thon, uh, you can participate in it with your badge. And then they have some limited edition pins. If you're a penny arcade collector, uh, you can get a badge and find some of those limited edition pins. All of that is at www.showclix.com slash tickets slash packs Online East. That was some news. Yeah, we <laughs> What before we would have to sort of struggle to find news (laughs) and now and maybe like once a month, maybe there'd be something from Wizards that's that caught our eye. And now it's like the first half hour of the show is all Wizards announcements. Well, Uh, we had heard that Wizards is going to
1: escalate, you know, they're ramp up the production. It's it's we're feeling it.
0: They're not joking. (laughs) So let's get into continue. Uh, with chapter four of Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft. We've covered the tools uh, for running horror and the guidance for running a horror game, a horror D&D game. And the final part of chapter four is an actual adventure called The House of Lament. So, folks, spoilers on the way. We are going to discuss this adventure in detail. So if you plan on playing it, thank you for listening. You might want to uh, check out at this point. So now... Now that it's safe, let's talk about, well, how safe it's going to be, we don't know. But let's talk about the House of Lament as a first-level adventure in this new Ravenloft book. Mm -hmm. Teos, I'm going to let you give the overview. All right. Well,
1: overview. It is an adventure for four to six first-level characters. You will be third by the end. There are specific points when you level up. Uh, one thing right off the bat that I thought was a very big mission, uh, I would say it's a mistake to leave this out is how long should this adventure run? Mm-hmm. There was no guess provided for us. Um, and, and I think that really, that could have mattered. Um, but okay. So my guess is this can run in four hours, but, uh, but they did not seem to share it and you'd think they'd have that kind of playtest feedback, but yeah. The general story of this is that there was this vicious warlord named Dalk Dranzorg. There's a name. Mm -hmm. And Dalk Dranzorg ravages the countryside. He comes up to this castle, starts taking the castle. And I guess uh, daughter of the whatever this castle owner is named Mara Silvra. She is uh, a knight, forms an army, and heads to fight Dalk Dranzorg. Along the way, she faces many challenges. And she ends up losing almost all of her soldiers. When she finally gets to Dalk, Dranzor gets her and just a handful of people. And he basically turns the lass' soldiers against her, um, telling them, you know, this is, you know, join me or die, basically. But she hears this whisper from some dark power, and she gives into it, and she lets out this crazy scream, gets all of this power, and then is able to defeat Dranzorg. Uh, But she doesn't just do that. She goes on a murderous rampage, takes out all of her former allies, everybody around the place, and does what Dark Dark Dranzorg had been doing, which is burying their enemies, I guess, alive, entombing them in the walls of the castle. Mm -hmm. Um, This then becomes known as the Castle of Lament. Eventually, only a single tower is left. The Havrest family very cleverly buys the land and decides that let's just keep the one tower as part of the structure and build onto it. And then a few years later they go missing and it becomes known as the House of Lament. Mm-hmm. So that is the background story. Anything you want to add there, Sean?
0: Uh not yet. Just you know, keep in mind that it's not not a complicated backstory so far. Uh it fits in very well with this sort of Ravenloft theme of giving, giving your soul over to gain this power. And then ironically becoming that, which you had feared and hated. Uh, Yeah. So, so there you go. So the adventure summary then says a mysterious message brings the characters to the house. Once they arrive, they find uh, at least one and possibly two people there investigating the house and they, these investigators, ask the characters to help them with their investigation, which is supposed to include both an exploration of the house as well as a séance or a series of séances to contact the spirits that are haunting the house.
1: Yeah, it's a it's a very interesting uh, mechanic, uh, and. But it's hard because up front, there is a lot you have to read as DM. And all of this, the information on the seances, on the investigators, is both great in that it provides a lot of choice and and neat things that you're doing. But boy, do you have to do some reading before you hit even the the intro or the first box text.
0: Yeah. I mean, and uh, Teos and I are pretty experienced dungeon masters. And I know that when I sat down and started reading this, I read through the overview and I'm like, okay, cool. I can, I can, I can do this. And then I started getting into the setup, which we'll discuss in a second. And, and I was lost almost immediately. Yeah. And it took me a while to even get a clue about how this was going to, to play. And yeah. even after reading it over once and starting a second read, I, I was still a little bit fuzzy on how it yeah. should run. So let's talk about the setup.
1: Okay. Yeah, and let me just quickly add, the house is its own domain, which Mm -hmm. is sort of interesting, and also a dark lord in and of itself. But the house can be in other domains, and it has a particular domain it usually sort of manifests in. But it can close its borders, which manifests as a violent thunderstorm, and there is an entity that lives below the house. And depending on what scenario you end up kind of running, which we'll get into, you may go down and defeat, as usual with domains of dread, temporarily defeat uh, the thing underneath it, yeah. because it's a manifestation of the dark powers. All so right, let's let
0: actually let's stop there yep. for a second because there are some things I'm still a little confused on as I read this. So mm-hmm. basically, as you said, it's its own domain, but it can be in other domains or it can go anywhere. Uh, and I think at some point it suggests that you, as the DM, start your players in completely different. Worlds or completely different areas, but they wander out into the fog based on the message they receive, and they end up meeting each other at this sort of crossroads near the House of Lament. Yeah. But when they start sharing their stories, one would be like, "Well, I just came from the city over here." When mm-hmm. the other players are like, "There's no city within you know 500 right. miles of of this place," to get, give the idea that they're all they could all be from different worlds yeah and, I, I liked and, that a lot and meeting here I liked it i I loved it, but it was not spelled out no clearly, like they say you receive a message. do they ever tell you what that message is
1: yeah no i I, I don't think so I think they I, just it it's just an oblique reference right. to it um that, that you are you have something is right. called here and in fact I think the dm sort has latitude as to how they can.
0: Yeah. express that message, which is a little right. strange. And in, nowhere does it actually give you the text of the message or even describe, even in general terms, what the message should say. So it's The putting, message should be
1: vague but enticing to the character, such as they need your help, prove yourself, or reclaim what you've lost. Yeah. So you may... It, it if, even says work with the players to decide the message's contents, which that eh, yeah. all... Players or DMs like that approach, but yeah. Right,
0: right. So it's that's that's a, a potentially heavy lift. If you yeah. are running this as a campaign or as the start of a campaign, you are going to want to take a lot more time uh, to craft this message in a way that it really fits with what your players want for their specific characters in the ongoing campaign.
1: Yeah, and, and before folks get too scared because – the, the, this is like this is the problem with the adventure to me is is this load uh, that is thrown at the DM. On the plus side, this adventure is full of really cool examples of how to weave horror in, mm-hmm. how to unsettle your characters in fun ways. There's a lot that I really really dig about this adventure. And I think that if this were, like, you say, your third time running this adventure and you were a pro at it now, it yeah. would feel awesome, yeah. right? Like, the, you'd, you'd it might end up being, like, one of your favorite adventures kind of thing because mm-hmm. once you get it, yeah. this is really fun. Yeah. But there, are, there is so much up front to cause you to yeah. just feel like gears getting stuck, and, and that's definitely how my brain felt working yeah. through this. And yeah. And all I could think of as a designer is whole point is this for this to be easy so that you know how to run a Ravenloft adventure yeah. and you jump right in and you aren't afraid to be a DM and you you know because players buy these kind of books that's why we have player content in them right. and we're supposed to be talking them into being a DM and if a DM looks at this stuff they're going to run the other way.
0: <laughs> yeah it's true and it, it, it is a marvelous adventure and it, it has the potential to, to be a heck of a lot of fun um, yeah. it just we want to warn you up front that what we're talking about is some of the work that you're going to have to do as the DM, uh, yeah. to, to get to get ready to play it, even as a one shot. Uh, yeah. get, get ready to play it. So, which is a shame.
1: S- I mean, you and I have run a million one shots at conventions, and there are a lot that you get that are very clever and super easy to run. They mm-hmm. don't, you know, these things do not have to be at odds. And
0: yeah. Well, I'll I'll tell you one more story then. Uh, when I first started on the Keolin Triad for Living Greyhawk back in the day, I sent out a survey to, to DMs, and I basically said, if you had your choice between these two extremes, which would you choose? An, an okay adventure that's very, very easy to run, or a a very interesting adventure that is difficult to run? And a majority of them actually said a very interesting adventure that's difficult to run. Hmm. And when I would then survey players afterwards, what I got more than anything was, but I wish this adventure had been easier. I w I didn't understand what was going on. The DM, you know, couldn't, we were lost as players Mm. and the DM didn't explain things or didn't present things in a way. So I think, uh, for, for consumers, we have this ideal that the we want these sort of complicated with, ventures with lots of choices and lots of moving parts because they're fun and interesting and different until we actually have to try to run them or play them, especially with a DM that might not be really prepared. Uh, then it turns into a negative experience in the long run. So yeah. I always try to tend toward the simpler uh, bearing those lessons from the past in mind. And a
1: lot of designers follow that path too. You know, empty black talks about that all the time, right? He he wants simple things. And a lot of the praise he gets is because his adventures are easy to run. Mm-hmm. And you know, me, I overcomplicate things. And it's one of the things I fight is I love yeah. to overcomplicate things, but I, but I also know that everything you're saying is true. So right. I try to tone it down. And, and a lot of what I try to spend my time on is making the complex, not complex, right? Making it exactly. rich, but easy. Yep. And that's hard. And if I were the developer on this book, I would have said, I love this, mm-hmm. and yet we must go back because the yeah. whole point of this adventure is to teach you how to easy and quickly get into the domains of dread. This, yeah. d- this is not easy and quick. Right. All right and, yeah, let's go get ahead. yep yeah let's get into the setup, so we're going to get several pages of information that you unfortunately must read to understand how to to have this adventure work, and hopefully our podcast will help you through this yep. um, so first, we have two types of hauntings, and i'll let me add one other design piece, which is and I think you would agree with this, Sean, feel free to jump in that when we often try to explain things up front, the reader a problem is that the reader does not exactly understand what you're talking about. There's no
0: context for it.
1: There's no context. Yeah. And so later you actually aren't fully prepared for what you're supposed to do by this earlier text. Mm -hmm. It's one of the reasons that it's often better to put things in the section where they belong. And, and, and it's a, it's a trade off when you're trying to do this. And so this book up front, it's telling us in the adventure hauntings here, there are two types of them. When the house is dormant called ambient haunts. And when they're awake, and these don't get a title. Mm-hmm. But later, if we look through the, the adventure, we see that they'll be labeled as awakened haunts. So ambient haunts, awakened haunts. Mm-hmm. And essentially what it is is you could go through a room and the room is just kind of creepy or whatever. It's got a statue. It's got a you know pile of books or something. But once the house awakens, the blood may run on the pages of the books or the statue may animate and attack me. So it's actually not complicated at all. When you're actually looking at an individual room, you know, room 14 or whatever, it sounds super complicated when I'm reading this here. Yeah. yeah. The ambient haunts is also worth saying. So the awakened haunts are these things that happen once the room is, is activated. The house is awakened. Uh, The ambient haunts are sort of a brief scene with a spirit that only one character can see. Mm Mm-hmm. We get a table for the spirit that is involved and another one for what the spirit does. And this is a case where I just didn't feel like this prepared me for what this all is or what the two things are. But really what it is is that we're supposed to periodically drop in these scenes where a spirit does a thing that one character sees. Mm Mm-hmm. And that is supposed to be creepy and, you know, would be kind of creepy and interesting and adds to this mystery because you're either passing a note to just one player or taking them aside. Or if you do it in front of everybody, you know, everybody gets it. This weird thing is only seen by one person. What does this mean? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think the way that these tables are set up for me felt like they were not particularly easy to run. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, they felt like, like I got, a, I got the spirit, which, you know, at this point in the reading, I'm definitely not sure of who all these various spirits are. Uh, and, and, and they are the people from that story that we told you about. They are mm-hmm. dark, the, you know, the, the evil overlord. They are the knight who came seeking vengeance. They are the people that bought the house. Mm-hmm. And it takes a while to sort of digest that. But that's, that's what these spirits are. Yeah. Um, and then they're doing a thing, which may be as simple as setting the table for dinner, or they may be trying to convey some message or reenacting some scene.
0: Mm-hmm. the the whole power of this adventure is the the idea that the house is there and it's slightly haunted but you're waking it up and it's going to become very haunted and yeah. how you get that across is the delta, the change between sleeping and awake and to get that point across as strongly as possible you have to have everyone visit the room twice visit the area twice so you want to control as the designer and as the dm what those things are to show the difference between room while sleeping room while the haunt is awake Mm -hmm. so to have a random table to reference when you're in an area robs you of that ability to set a cool base for the change that's going to come from it um yeah and, and so so that's that's very important to keep in mind, and so you, as the d m may want to go through and just say the ambient haunt in this room, based on the awakened haunt will be this sort of innocent version of what we're going to see later and that's um, exactly what I would do sean i I would take pen to paper or
1: you know digital whatever format, <clears throat> and i would I would do that I would say room fourteen here's what's going to be my ambient haunt. Mm -hmm. just ahead of time. And, you know, you might improvise and change it up while you go, but versus this idea of rolling on a table because,
0: because yeah, some things fit better in certain rooms. And yeah. And so, so that's, that's very important. And you should keep that in mind from the start as you're reading it, uh, is how is this going to be different between the, when they go through it the first time and when they go through it, once the nightmares began.
1: Yeah, and then we get this uh, nightmare system. So the nightmares are if anybody takes a long rest, one character will have a nightmare. And this is like a vision into the past of the house. It's much more detailed than like an ambient haunt where you see a spirit. This is like a a piece of the story. Like, um, uh, you know, the desperate night Mara forcing tired soldiers to march towards the ominous castle. Some scene like that. At the end of it, the... One character wakes up in a totally different room and and you, there's a um you know room uh table that you roll on yeah. um It's a neat idea, I think it's just I don't know that it's gonna come up that often. I don't know how many long rests were expected to take here, and that was yeah also who sleeps in a haunted house but
0: yeah I don't know right and and that we're gonna get to that point later about the type <laughs> of adventure it is uh and why it's problematic you know, for any adventure of that type, but we'll, we'll get to that later because next after nightmares are the seances. The seances are sort of the events in this event-based, uh, adventure. So the DM has to choose which of the spirits they are going to allow the players and these investigators to talk to. It could be Dulk, uh, the evil warlord. It could be Mara, the rageful ex-knight or it could be Theodora uh, Halvrest who bought the house after it had fallen after the castle had fallen down around it so with each seance uh, the DM will use that planchette uh, from the spirit board to guide a message to the characters now each of the three spirits has an agenda and directs the PCs to different locations where they want those PCs to perform a certain task, uh, which will, you know, end their unrest or further their goals or or what have you. Uh, you are supposed to level then after each of these seances happen. And we should also mention now that the investigators <laughs> who they present could be any of three different Uh, pairs yeah so you've got random well not random but your choice of three different sets of investigators the set you choose will change the way that the tone uh you know how things play out in the adventure you can choose different spirits to talk to at the at the seance that changes the adventure and how it resolves itself and what, what the big final encounter has to be. Uh, So all of these moving parts just go even further in adding a coolness to the adventure, but also a difficulty in running the adventure. Yeah. And, And it is, again, once you, once you know this, it's really cool,
1: but it is, it is hard to, to feel comfortable with it. Yeah. just even reading it uh it's also the other thing that if you thought you could just pick this up and run it boy it's complicated because you've you choose a particular uh you know npc for the seance and now actually how the adventure ends is different mm-hmm. and and you may not be prepared for that and and you may be thinking like oh yeah the climax occurs in room x well not if it's this person from the right. seance so exactly that is that is a, a thing that takes some doing. And this, this is an adventure that I would say you really need to read twice before you run and make your own
0: notes. <laughs> right. And it also, one of the things I thought about when you talked about the how long should this last, this adventure could last an hour and a half with a certain party, right? You you do seance one, they explore a room, boom. You do seance two, they explore a different room, boom, three. This This could take 12 hours depending yeah. on how much you explore, how often the seances occur, uh, which can all be triggered by different things. So yeah. there's one more complicating factor uh, in this adventure. Uh, so we're giving we're given a flowchart. Do you want to go through that flowchart? Yeah, and, and I thought it was
1: funny that several pages in, we get the adventure flowchart. Right. So that was another thing that I'm like, oh, I mean, it's always hard to format things, so I, I get it, yeah, but yeah. <laughs> and it's like, okay. So the flowchart is... You're going to arrive at the house. You're going to explore the house. And they don't really say this, but later they do. Uh, the first seance will happen when they reach the second floor. And that should be both in the flow chart and in the overview. Right. Then you're going to explore some more. So probably the second floor. Uh, when you reach the third floor, the people will call out to you, whoever your investigators are and say, Hey, time for you know the, the second seance. Um, Then we have this section called mysteries of the house where really what this is, is you're going to explore the rest. So part of the tower or go underneath. Um, And then you're going to have the final seance and the house is going to awaken. But we're also told within (laughs) the text, you know, that kind of play it by ear because someone could just go like, Hey, let's start on the second floor. Right. And so, you know, maybe you don't quite want to start the seance that, quickly right. or maybe you do and there are certain areas where it says if they explore here the house awakens that too yes yeah, so you can awaken the house by doing certain things like if you start hacking at the walls the house yeah. repairs itself but it doesn't like it so we're told if, if you know they start being destructive um, there are also some things that are hidden and should be revealed later so if you start tearing away at it the way the house will respond um, and then there are certain scenes where you can
0: awaken the house by doing things which is interesting so, so let's talk about adventure design. Uh, sometimes you can categorize adventures uh, into two kinds, event-based and location-based. A location-based is the goblins are stealing the livestock. Please go to their cave complex and stop them from stealing our livestock. So you go and you go through the six uh, rooms of their cave and in the final room, That's where the Goblin King is, and you either fight or you come to an agreement, and it's done. Another is adventure-based or um, event-based, where you're in a location and things happen. And as things happen, things around you change. That's another fine way to write uh, an adventure. When you try to mix the two, when you try to run an event-based adventure in a location-based setting, it can get very, very complicated. It can cause tons of problems for the DM because for example, let's say you're in a, in a town and there's 27 places that you can investigate, but what uh, triggers everything is an event at night. You could get the party who wants to investigate all 27 places (laughs) <laughs> uh, and to stop them from doing that, you have to move the time forward more quickly than is actual, actually true, which feels like you're forcing it. Uh, yeah. And so, you know, then that event happens and things change. And then they want to go through all 27 locations again when actually what really needs to happen is they need to go past another midnight where the next event in this event-based adventure happened. This is sort of what we're seeing here. Uh, There's events that push things forward, but there's locations, lots and lots of locations to explore. And melding those two things can be tricky. It it, it can work very nicely if everything goes according to plan and timing is perfect and everything goes well. But as soon as you, you get the characters doing things that aren't quite expected, or even if they do things that are expected, but but just happen to trigger things in the wrong order, it can get very messy. And yeah. that's fine. D&D can be messy sometimes, and that's why you have DMs to, to straighten things out. But if you are the DM for this, you have to either think things through and be ready or be a very good ad-libber and uh, ready to to twist everything around at the drop of a hat. And as a designer
1: too, I recall on my end, a, a living Greyhawk adventure that, um, was one of these towns where you're supposed to visit the various houses and events are going to happen to slowly reveal who is the, I, I think it was a shapeshifter or something like that, but who's the evil person that's been causing the trouble. Right. And, uh, we had played a lot of different adventures and we knew exactly what this adventure was trying to do. And we grabbed a young teenager that we'd met in scene one. And we said, Hey. Tell everybody in town there's a huge party. The adventurers are spending money. Everybody's invited. And we held it at someone's house. And as people came in through the door, the teenager would tell us who this was. And we would read their thoughts Mm -hmm. and know whether they were that person or not. And we just brought the town to us. And so what was supposed to be this slow progression of interviewing people and following clues was all revolved, resolved in one party scene that we held. And the DM was just sitting back there going like, I can't believe you're all doing this. And we're like, well, yeah, Why? we know what's going to happen. People are going to slowly be murdered. We're not going to put up with that. Everybody's right. coming to us and here's the guy who's guilty and we're done. Yeah. <laughs> it was really very funny. But that's the kind of thing that as a designer, you know. Right. People will approach things. You took the
0: the location out of the equation and it became an event-based adventure for you. The event being people walking in through the door. Yep. Yep. So good on you and good on the DM for, uh, for putting up with your shenanigans. So, you know, with, with all that in mind, uh, when you design an adventure, the first thing you should ask yourself is how will the players likely attack this problem? Am I providing the DM with everything that they need to manage that. And am I hanging the DM out to dry if the PCs do something that uh, wasn't, either wasn't expected or I just didn't think about because, you know, it's, it's obvious to most people, but my brain didn't go there. Um, And so as I'm reading adventures, that's the first thing that I do is, you know, pull out those elements and say, okay, this is what I'm expected this is what I'm expecting the players to do when they enter the house. They will do what? Uh yeah. And then if that's the first thing that happened, what it was the next step that they would probably take. Um yeah. so that's that's how I started to read this adventure. So yeah, how did Yeah, go ahead.
1: Yeah, let's talk about how this um kicks off because all of this is the preamble and then we get the yeah. actual adventure. So we, we get our chance to think through all this, ruminate this all. We get the flow chart. And then the adventure is actually hits its start. Uh, everybody receives a message. As we said, it's not fully explained what it is. But they come from different directions and arrive at this crossroads. Uh, that's neat. There's a lot in this adventure that's great. The idea of everybody coming in this slightly misty place from a different direction and meeting up. And everybody witnesses a cloaked figure suddenly fly away you know, supernatural right off the bat, leaving feathers and a planchette behind. Cool. Cool start. And there's a clear road leading to the house.
0: Yep. And then the, they go to the house and they meet the two investigators, whichever pair that you uh, choose. Uh, One is a Van Richten and accompanied by the spirit of his son. Although he doesn't quite know that his son is there. The, the characters learn, uh, Another is a, an incantation of Tatiana from Barovia. Uh, Whichever pair you choose, their goals are slightly different, but they're all here to investigate the spirits and they are not the ones that sent the messages that brought the players. Um, So there's that sense of mystery behind it that you can play with as a DM. And
1: and important to note that the NPCs are going to split up. One of them comes with you Mm -hmm. and the other one stays sort of preparing for the next seance. And, I don't mind that except that now the DM also is running an NPC, yeah. which this is already an, uh, an adventure that's complicated. And what I like when an NPC comes along is when the NPC solves problems. And I don't know that this does and that the NPC is not giving me tools by which to resolve things. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not necessarily like, because I have this NPC, I can't necessarily provide great guidance on what's going on. And so to me, it feels like the NPC sort of takes up space and I'm not sure how balanced things are. But I will say a lot of these fights are hard. So you probably
0: do want the NPC yeah. to come along because yeah. the fights are hard. The, the important thing for the NPC to do for me as I read it is give them the background of this house. Because since, since mm-hmm. the house is a mystery, it's not like you can go to town and say, hey, what's that house out there? And people give you the backstory of, of it. You know, so these... NPCs can say we don't know a lot about it but we do know that it was once a castle owned by blank and it was taken over yeah. by uh you know this uh horrible warlord and then this other family bought it but no one's heard from them you know you can sort of give a general yeah. background using the NPCs and then let the haunts and the nightmares and the other information fill in those gaps
1: So the first floor has a number of really neat features. Um, This concept of the awakened haunts is very interesting. As we said, a, a, a room will be one way before it awakens and then comes to life in some horrible way when the house is awakened and what's neat about that is often when we're moving around a place like this we don't care about moving back like say going back to the seance or something like that but now moving around in the later stage becomes very interesting and dangerous because suddenly these rooms have brand new threats or experiences and there are some great creepy elements in here the tower is the mm-hmm. remnant of the old tower. So it's particularly freaky and, and uh, scary. It has stairs with wind that constantly comes down and you hear a scream of what's called the leaper, this sort of invisible entity that is continuously jumping down the tower and dying. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can sort of interact it in very limited ways, but once it's awakened, it's a poltergeist specter and it shoves you off and tries to yeah. murderize you. Yep. Um, the conservatory has an ambient haunt, which everyone sees, and then it becomes a haunted trap. So that helps us understand the haunted trap rules that we mentioned
0: in the previous episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, the ballroom um, gives yeah. you a vision of uh, the warlord Dulk. So you can sort of learn what happened through the story because he treats the, the characters as if they were Lady Silvers' uh, army and says, will you forsake her for your lives? and uh so you you sort of get to play out that that scene and and learn more about it that way
1: yeah pretty neat um there's some elements that uh will unfold over time so like dranzorg is buried at the base of the tower but can only be found once the house awakens
0: mm-hmm. what what uh stood out for you on the
1: second floor
0: uh it's it's not Nothing. It was all good. It was sort of like the previous adventures that we've talked about. The details themselves are fun, you know. Mm -hmm. They're super neat. They're the things I would like to play. It's sort of the overall umbrella above them. Yeah, Yeah, that's the problem. So, you know, there's there's lots of great stuff. I just worry that there might be too much. Mm -hmm. Uh, There might be too many areas. If the whole point is to see how things change, you don't want thirty different areas changing. Right? You want ten areas changing, and you want to focus in on those areas
1: yeah, you're probably right. I think this place is a little too big, three floors is more than you need. There are some interesting th- approaches like um th- and these I think these are valuable lessons right so d m s often believe the adventure is sort of sacrosanct, mm-hmm. um, but there are some parts here where it sort of says you choose like there is in the office a deed to the house, which is kind of has its interesting yeah. pieces you know do you want to own it? Um, and you get to choose whether there is a wand of magic missiles or a gun with 49 bullets using the DMG rules for it. And that's an interesting thing to say to the DM. Hey, what do you prefer? Mm -hmm. You decide what's here as treasure.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm cool with that. And I'm fine with that. And it is important to, to know that you will need to change these things just with how the, the adventure is designed. So be very comfortable doing that. Uh, especially based on the actions of your players. I think what's most important, more important than even each individual uh, room mm-hmm. is how it changes based on the three spirits that you can talk to. Uh, so as we mentioned, there are three spirits uh, Theodora, who is the last owner of the house uh, whose family purchased it after the castle fell. Uh, and so in order to escape not just the house but this entire domain yeah. uh, you need to do something for each of the spirits with theodora it's she wants um the children's toys to be dealt with because they sort of are um holding them here so you need to deal with a shadow demon which is a cr4 <laughs> Uh, creature, so hopefully you're third level by then, uh, as well as two specters, so that could be a tough battle. Uh, but that's you know yeah. that's the big final battle uh, for Theodora. Uh, do you want to talk about Mara?
1: Yeah, so she's trying to convince the party to come down to the basement, which holds this sort of eerie, creepy layer from the old ruins uh area from the old ruins that includes this depression and in it is this amber monolith, uh, with the sort of entity that's in the, that's governing the house is here. Um, and ostensibly what she's communicating to you is help me destroy this thing. But really what she does is once you come down there, she says to the entity, take them, spare me. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so she has not her learned her lessons. (laughs) Uh, but this is, you know, it's quite tough, really. Um, that is a hard fight as well.
0: Yeah. And and Dranzorg is the third spirit, and he will eventually be released or break free from from his from the house's control, and be a revenant, which is a CR five monster. So there's another tough battle. And worse, yeah, he can't be permanently defeated, except by Mara. Right? So Mara defeated him in life, and Mara has to be the one to defeat him in death. So how does that work? Well, if he's the spirit, Mara will uh, either possess you, possess a PC, or uh, if they're wearing her armor, it's the same effect. And then um, so the, the PC who gets possessed or who's using her armor can then be the one to strike the final blow against Transorg. And if so, uh, Mara will release the power of the, the house and allow everyone to leave.
1: Yeah. So it's a very interesting, you know, how this adventure has three different ways it can pan out, Mm -hmm. uh, trying to escape with rules that aren't super explained, uh, from these shadow demons and specters, the specters regenerating some amount of distance to get away with the toys. Um, Narratively, I like that one a lot, but this it, it really does not tell me what happens in this final yeah. escape scene. Um, but I guess you can just play with it as DM if you're comfortable with that. Yeah. Um, or Mara with this monolith. That's a very straightforward one. Um, Dranzorg is probably the wildest one in that trying to guide them properly to these various things seems yeah. to me the hardest to pull off well.
0: Yeah. Um, now, the the good news is the the seances are meant to point the characters to the things that they need to carry out the final stories for each of these different plots. So it's not like the adventure lets you, you know, leaves you hanging that badly. Um, You just may need to be ready to tweak things a bit rather than shoving the characters into a room that they need to be in Bring the room to them by changing, you know, changing the location of the room to be the actual one that they're going into rather than some random room that really doesn't speak to the particular quest that they have to complete in order to escape. And, and that's the thing that's
1: hard when you have a more complicated setup like this where there are three possible different things you're trying to do. It's harder to drop in advice for DMs. And, and so I would have loved to have seen some advice that says, hey... Use the investigators to drop clues, or mm-hmm. have uh, one of these spirits that walks by point the way. There are a number of ways that you can guide, mm-hmm. but I think because the adventure is already doing such a, so much,
0: it right. it loses it, its opportunity
1: to say that.
0: Yeah, there's but, a, a lot of there's a lot of specter in the details as opposed to yeah. devil in the details. Uh, so if you are going to run this, and you know you aren't. 100% confident in your abilities to ad-lib pick one of the threads, one of the quest threads ahead of time, and actually make yourself out a, an outline based solely on that quest Yeah. to know yeah. that you need to go to this room and they need to pick up this armor and they need to have these things in order to survive the final encounter. Right.
1: Yeah. And don't cross the streams. You know, you, you, don't want to fight Dranzorg if you're not on the Dranzorg mm-hmm. track True. Uh, because that will be too much and it's more adventure than you need to provide. and It'll take away from the story and, you know, focus on the, if you're on the, the track of getting the toys, focus on that mm-hmm. and don't get distracted with the other pieces.
0: Yep. And uh, finally, after they have hopefully succeeded in escaping the House of Lament, there is a section talking about where to go from here. And it's not overly specific. Uh they in fact they give a D4 table about what you can do from here. And it's even those are generally very um not bland, bland's not the word I'm looking for, but very generic. Uh Characters glimpse a, the winged figure that they saw at the start of the adventure going through the mist, and it leads them to a random domain. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Okay. Why not? Well, I would have loved to have seen a little bit more connection here uh, between between what and, the characters do and right. what they may do in other domains. I was just going
1: to say the simple thing here would have been based on which of the three tracks you're on. Yeah, here's what you get as a lead, right? Yeah. Like the spirit of the lady of the house appears, right? Or, you know, something else, right? So something based on one of those three tracks that leads you to whichever place the DM wants to take you to, because right. that's obviously what, you know, if the DM yeah. wants to take you to another domain
0: of Barovia, then that's what this entity yeah. would do, right? But uh, and, and what this tells me is there aren't going to be any official adventures in in any of the domains of Dread. Because if there were, it would have been a natural thing to say, oh, sure. you can go to one of these three uh, things and, oh, check on the DMs Guild for this adventure series about this domain. Uh, yeah. That wasn't there, so.
1: And I I am super surprised at how hard some of these fights are. And that's one of the things that I'd also say advice-wise is to to be... Uh, aware of that, um, and there 's nothing here that says you know if you only have four characters do this it 's just it 's just written yeah. um, and and these aren 't often avoidable, like say when you go to the basement if you 're on the track where you must destroy the monolith it's it has eighty one hit points and it summons tendrils that function as five shadows and five shadows, even if they 're level three at the time, five shadows is a strong test, and you 've got this eighty one hit point monolith you have to take down and but there's some beautiful touches throughout the adventure. I would definitely encourage reading it. I think it's a fascinating adventure to read through. Mm-hmm. And I think it would be a fun one to run. Yeah. Uh, you just have to do that work.
0: Yeah, and, and it is it is great at the individual locations of how to do horror you know, and how to use those rules. Uh, as Teos mentioned, the, the haunt trap uh, in one of the early rooms is there, uh, well used from its description earlier in the chapter. Yeah. Well, we did talk today. We, we got Ooh. our uh, our week's work worth of talking in. <laughs> and I want to thank everybody for listening. And we hope our review is helpful to you. And we want to thank you for listening and to thank our patrons for their support. If you like the show, we would love it if you'd consider becoming a patron by going to patreon.com slash MMP. Uh, Teos, social media. Where can people find you? Find
1: me at my blog, alphastream.org. Subscribe to my mailing list there for lots of fun insights. I've been covering the monster damage and encounter design. Um, you can also uh, interact with me on the Twitters, at
0: alphastream. How about you, Sean? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Sean Merwin or on the forums at forums.misdirectedmark.com. You can also also talk to us on the Mastering D&D Twitter, which is at Mastering D&D. Mastering Dungeons is a misdirected mark production. The media arm of encoded designs. So, Teos, now that we have survived the House of Lament, what should we do now? Oh, it's really clear. We're going to roll on this table uh, and then look up... Wait, i got to see. What
1: was the investigator we're using? Uh, yeah. Uh, let me. I'm going to need some time.
0: You know what I look think we should do? Go kill some monsters.
1: Oh, okay.